This is the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the two authors of The Particularistic President, Executive Branch Politics, and Political Inequality. Douglas Kreiner and Andrew Reeves are the authors. Cambridge University Press is the publisher. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Douglas and Andrew. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and the book that we're going to be talking about today is written by Douglas Kreiner and Andrew Reeves, and the title of the book is The Particularist. This is the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the two authors of The Particularistic President, Executive Branch Politics, and Political Inequality, Douglas Kreiner and Andrew Reeves are the authors. Cambridge University Press is the publisher. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Douglas and Andrew. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and the book that we're going to be talking about today is written by Douglas Kreiner and Andrew Reeves, and the title of the book is The Particularistic President, Executive Branch Politics, and Political Inequality. I have uh, both of the authors here. Douglas Kreiner, how are you? Very good. Thank you very much, Heath. And Andrew Reeves, how about yourself? Very well. Thanks for having us, Heath. Good. You are both here. And before we get to the book, we'd like to hear who you are. Uh, Doug, do you want to start first and just very briefly tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Douglas Kreiner. I'm an associate professor of political science at Boston University. And my main research interests are American institutions uh, with a focus often in foreign policy. And Andrew, how about yourself? Sure. Uh, So I'm an assistant professor at WashU in the political science department. Um, I study American politics with a focus on elections, uh, with also an institutional focus on the the presidency. Okay, Andrew, we we may be losing you a little bit on your side. I think, Doug, we, we still have you here, right? Yes, I'm still here. Okay, so so I'm sure Andrew will come back in in, in a second. So uh, while we're getting him back, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how your collaboration started. Uh, what's the what's the germ of the project? What what brought the two of you together to work on this? Uh, interestingly, it was an undergraduate student when we were both uh, junior faculty at BU. Uh, he was taking one of the graduate methods courses and wanted to replicate an existing paper. And he was interested in the uh, paper by uh, Chris Berry, Barry Burden, and Will Howe in the APSR, looking at whether or not presidents use their uh, levers over the budgetary process to try and help out co-member or co-partisan members of Congress. Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to turn off those announcements there. And so we worked with him on some of the data, and uh, as part of that, we started building up or rebuilding from scratch uh, data from the Consolidated Federal Funds reports. And uh, we said, hey, you know, we put a lot of work into this with the student. We should try and do something totally different with the data. And uh, that led us to look at whether or not uh, presidents actually get electoral rewards for the amount of, of funding that different parts of the country get. And that sort of turned into the first article, and uh, we went from there. Yeah, that's that's great. And I wonder, Andrew, do we have you back yet? Am I? Can you hear me? We we can. Great. And and it's we we may have lost a little bit of your title, but we have you back to talk about what's so important about the book, which um, is is a little bit of the title. Um, and and maybe before we actually get to the title, 
you can describe for me just a little bit about the, the universalistic presidency and, and a little bit sort of the, the counterpoint that the book is about. So who has argued for this other view of the presidency, the view that um, in many ways your book is, is trying to um, criticize in a certain way? So tell us about that other side of the debate. Yeah, you know, Doug and I both believe that there is a lot of truth in this idea of a universalistic president, uh, and that is uh, the vision of the presidency in a in a popular sense that begins with people like Theodore Roosevelt, um, continues with Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. This idea that the president is the people's representative and provides a counterbalance to the parochial interests that members of Congress have. And this is reflected in how we as scholars think about the presidency. When we think about what we hold the president accountable for, uh, we often argue that these are big, broad national things like the state of the national economy or, or whether we're at war or not. Uh, so, so Doug and I, uh, uh, you know, while we believe that many aspects of the universalistic president are true, we in our book argue that there's this this other conception which we have, which is the the particularistic president. And and Doug, what about this 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 uh, uh, opposing view? Um, essentially, the presidents uh, are are more particularistic than universalistic. Um, which of the aspects of the standard argument do you guys disagree with most? What's what's sort of the the lever in to say, wait a second, there's there's something that's not quite right that that needs to be tested. Well, um, I think a lot of it to pick up on what Andrew was saying about electoral incentives sort of begins there. Um, one of the reasons that T.R. or Woodrow Wilson uh, sort of started to put forward this idea is that the president and the vice president are the only actors in our system who have the entire nation as a constituency. And so sort of logically, it makes sense that, all right, uh, whether you think presidents care a tremendous amount about election, re-election, being succeeded by another member of their party or not, even if they do, right, that th their incentives are going to look a lot different than the incentives that drive members of Congress who represent both the country, but most directly, a, a pretty narrow geographic constituency. Um, you know, we just argue that that's, that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, the scholarship on the Electoral College has always talked about campaigns, right? Um, presidents spend all of their time, they spend all of their energy, they spend all of their resources, as do their opponents, in these handful of, of states and key parts of those states even, uh, where the election is going to be decided. And we want to know, all right, you know, after the last piece of confetti at the inaugural parade falls, uh, do presidents continue to behave or are their, are their actions driven and affected by these sort of weird electoral incentives that our, that our system creates? Uh, or are they more universalistic people who are concerned first, foremost, and even solely in the strongest account uh, by what's in the interests of the nation as a whole? So, Andrew, I think there's lots of ways that you you uh, build this argument uh, empirically, and I'd like to talk about those. But before, would you tell us a little bit about what Cheney's list uh, was? And, and you know, what this is all about, anything involving Dick Cheney is always interesting. So what was Cheney's list and, and how does it relate to the, the story that you tell in the book? Sure. Uh, so one of the areas that we look at are base closings. Um, and so in the 1990s, you have a case where the executive branch uh, decides that they are going to take over decisions about base closings. 
In the past, it had been a, a congressional prerogative uh, that had been decided by commissions. That changes when Dick Cheney, who at the time is Secretary of Defense, says, you know what, this prerogative belongs to the uh, uh, executive branch. And so he develops a list of, of recommended base closures. Um, and I'll, I'll hand this over to Doug because he, he focused on this analysis in the, in the book. So I'll, I'll let him finish, finish telling the, the, this, this particular aspect. Yeah, so Doug, tell us, tell us more. Sure. Um, I was just thinking it's kind of funny uh, having just seen the, you know, on House of Cards, we're sort of familiar with the BRAC commission. Uh, and, you know, this is like Andrew said, that one little interlude, right? There had been the first BRAC commission in which there was this independent uh, group that was making these sorts of decisions. And, you know, it was a one, one and done uh, deal. And then Cheney decides that, you know, this sort of thing, this is Congress taking away uh, stuff that really is within the prerogative of the executive branch. And so they submit this list, um, and it becomes a, a real object of political controversy. Democrats look at it, and they cry foul. They say, look, you know, you are concentrating these base closures. They're, they're coming overwhelmingly from Democratic districts. Uh, and that's true. You can just look at it. Republicans on the flip side say, well, yeah, because Democrats have controlled the House for so long at this point. Uh, that, you know, you have put as many bases into your district as you could, and you shunted us as the minority. Uh, and so what we're able to do is to look at some data on where the bases were, and we can control for some districts having more districts than, uh, excuse me, some districts having more military bases than others. And we're able to see, like, how do the political characteristics of each district influence the probability of it being targeted for a major base closure? controlling for sort of the underlying distribution of bases across the country. And what we find are uh, Democratic districts are overwhelmingly targeted, while Republican ones are protected. We even also find that there's one exception to that. Uh, Democratic districts in swing states are pretty insulated. Uh, so in parts of the country that overwhelmingly vote Democratic, represented by Democrats, they pay the, the disproportionate share of the pain. Uh, and what's really interesting about it is that both the Secretary of Defense and the President himself uh, flatly denied that you know these sorts of calculations, partisan or electoral, entered into their decision making. And maybe it was an implicit bias, but uh, the numbers are are pretty clear. Now, now, Andrew, this this um, I think maybe from some perspectives would say, well, that that's you know that isn't terribly surprising that that something like that might be made in this kind of um, very hyper-political way related to electoral factors. But you also study some other presidential decisions that most people would say should never be uh, politicized, and including decisions about disaster recovery. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about that analysis and what you expected to find, and, and ultimately what you did find about the relationship between these um, political factors and, and where uh, presidents have spent disaster relief funds. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that Doug and I try to do in the book is look at a number of different contexts where um, presidential particularism uh, might be influential. And of course, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, one of the main areas is, is federal spending. We also look at the case of um, presidential disaster declarations. So this is a really interesting context because it's a case where the president has some direct say over distributive politics. 
right? A lot of the things that we look at, you know, there's a lot of different actors involved and it's hard to say where, uh, you know, why any single dollar in federal spending ends up at any single one place. But with presidential disaster declarations, they by statute have unilateral authority to give thumbs up or thumbs down as to whether a state will qualify for um, potentially millions, sometimes even billions of, of dollars in, um, in disaster aid from the federal government. So we looked at this case because there, there's a strong expectation here of universalism. And we, we have a good sort of empirical sense of what that relationship will look like. In a world without presidential particularism, the severity of the, the damage caused by a weather event should be the, the most predictive thing about whether or not a state gets help from the federal government. And these, these uh, uh, measures of the political characteristics of a place shouldn't have any influence in a world where the president is universalistic. Um, so, so we have this nice sort of world where we can test our hypothesis. And sure enough, and I have to say that the thing that we find, it, it is in fact true that the, the damage that a, a place uh, uh, experiences is the single best predictor of whether or not it, it gets a disaster declaration. However, these political characteristics are very influential as well. Um, and so if a state is a swing state, and if that happens to be an election year, right, the probability that they get a disaster declaration goes way up above and beyond um, what we would expect just given the amount of disaster, uh, the, the disaster damage. And likewise, we see a similar relationship in those places where there are a lot of presidential co-partisans. So while the actual damage is a very good predictor, we see evidence of our particularistic president in that these political characteristics of the places also uh, influence in pretty substantial ways uh, whether or not these places get the thumbs up or thumbs down for the president uh, to get this extra federal money. So, so uh, Doug, let, let's say you've convinced me. You, you've convinced me uh, of your case. What should be done? Um, should the Electoral College be overturned and, and, and changed? Should uh, other factors uh, uh, that we do have control over uh, be shifted in some way? Should presidents be uh, control over these uh, these decisions be moved back to independent groups or to Congress? Uh, what should be done? Well, it is an interesting question. Um, we talk about different types of what we call particularistic incentives, right? So uh, if you wanted to address the consequences of what we call electoral particularism, then yes, you know, changing uh, the method in which uh, electors are allocated, uh, whether you would abolish the Electoral College, whether you would uh, have all states adopt the national popular vote scheme, whether you would just sort of end unit rule apportionment, you know, just that these would have our point, I think, really, is just that they would have implications for policy as opposed to just electoral implications. Um, on the other end, I think one important point that we want to make is pushing back against some is that. Uh, there are a lot of scholars, pundits, politicians alike who sort of, I think, look at our contemporary politics and particularly what they see as widespread institutional institutional dysfunction in Congress. And, you know, they say maybe the, the solution is to move more of the policymaking power to the executive branch. Um, Justice Kagan sort of uh, has made this argument in, in law reviews before that sort of, you know, uh, 
echoing this universalistic statement that presidents, you know, driven by a national constituency, take a more holistic view. And there undoubtedly is some truth to that. Uh, you know, even uh, Mann and Ornstein in their most recent book uh, acknowledge that given how far off the wagon Congress has fallen, uh, it might make sense to delegate a little bit more power to the president. But we just I think that we sort of take a, a fundamentally conservative view here and say, you know, look before you leap. Uh, what would the consequence be of shifting more authority, especially over programmatic implementation uh, from the legislative branch to the executive branch? And I think that um, there might even be some normative positives to that. But we shouldn't kid ourselves in thinking that politics will necessarily be less parochial than they were before, uh, just that the parochial incentives are, are going to and the dis resulting inequalities in the distributions of various federal assets are going to reflect the president's uh, political imperatives more so than those of members of Congress. Now, uh, Andrew, the, the book is out. And um, can we expect another collaboration from the two of you? Are you guys working on another project or have you gone your own ways and will be producing very different projects? Tell us about your Next step in your research uh, career. Uh, so we, uh, Doug and I currently have a couple of related uh, 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 projects related to this book. Um, you know, one of our, our the, the thing we kept coming back to in writing the particularistic president was how much the president dominates uh, you know, not just politics in terms of what happens at an elite level and sort of the, the who gets what question. But there's, you know, another aspect of the book, which is we find that voters increasingly hold presidents accountable for these local phenomenon, right? So it's not a, a single story about electorally important and politically important places getting resources, but there's a voter side story here, which is that, you know, whether or not you get some more highway funding or a new uh, cancer research center built in your particular district or your county, we see that showing up in, in the fundamental way that voters evaluate presidents. So we're exploring that in other contexts, including the way that uh, sort of what presidents do, how that influences how uh, individuals hold their local elected officials, their members of Congress, their senators accountable. Um, and so that that's the, the paper we're working on right now. And I'm sure that there will be be other collaborations uh, in, the, in the future. Well, uh, I think we are all eager to uh, read those. Uh, your current book, The Particularistic President, Executive Grant Politics and Political Inequality, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Douglas Kreiner, thank you. Thank you. And Andrew Reese, thank you as well. Yes, thank you so much.